Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Uh, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Woo! Who's excited? Who's excited for Thanksgiving? Woo! Who is absolutely terrified? Who is terrified? Yes. Yeah, that's generally the two responses when it comes to Thanksgiving. You're either really excited about it or you're really terrified about it because you've got to go visit the in-laws or the outlaws or the friends or the people that you'd rather not talk to, but for the sake of your marriage, you do it. Um, Fortunately, it's not the case in my marriage. I'm very thankful for my in-laws. She's sitting right back here. But these, these are the two responses that we have. And for some people, the idea of staying at work on Thanksgiving might be better than going to Thanksgiving or celebrating Thanksgiving at all. And the reality is, is that we as people operate on rhythms. And to, to prove that, whenever a good beat comes on or whenever we're singing worship, I bet most of you were tapping your foot to the rhythm and to the beat. And for many of us, this story here at Damascus Road This place of worship is about creating a rhythm. It's about creating a rhythm that says that God is here to save you. It's about a rhythm that says that we are on mission for Jesus Christ. And it's a a rhythm that says that we are here for each other and we're going to be in community with one another. And so this place, this rhythm that we go through from singing songs, receiving the message, having communion together, some places they call this liturgy. And it's not surprising that as we look at our year, we see also there's different rhythms, different highs, different lows, different dips. And we come to the place of the rhythm of the year of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we're given these rhythms for a place of celebration, to celebrate joy, to celebrate life, to celebrate community and salvation. And that's what Thanksgiving is about and as we enter the Christmas season. But for some of us, That's not the rhythm that we feel when we come to Thanksgiving. That's not the rhythm we feel when we come to Christmas. Instead, the rhythm or the liturgical story that we feel is a story of loss. It's a story of rejection. It's a story of mourning. It's a story of disappointment. It's a story of great suffering. And so the question is, is as we appear, as we approach Thanksgiving, as we approach Christmas, how do we celebrate with gratitude and with joy when we find ourselves in the middle of deep sorrow and anguish and disappointment. One of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, says that all of us carry a deep weight of suffering and disappointment in our lives wherever we go. And that that suffering is so unique and so profound to each person that for me to go up to you and say, man, I really know how you're feeling would be a lie. And I tend to agree with him. I think each one of us is carrying a weight and a burden so heavy that we're not really sure how to carry it. And so we come to a place of suffering and of disappointment. And as we come to the season of Thanksgiving and we think about how we can be thankful, I wanted to think about what prevents us from being thankful, what what guides us to a place of ingratitude. And I think the first step is our pride that says that we don't need anything, that we can accomplish everything that we need on our own. But I think the second place is more of an underlier for that statement, and that is that somewhere in our life we've been profoundly disappointed. 
that we've been shaken to the point that we've been disappointed, that we don't even know if there's really anything in this life worth hoping for anymore. So I'm not talking about a disappointment that it snowed before Thanksgiving. I'm talking about the disappointment that shakes our soul, that we carry with us that other people might not know. It also might be the disappointment that are, that's simple, like I went to work and my job didn't work out the way that I thought it was going to. It might look like my kids are not acting in school the way that I thought that they would, and I'm disappointed. But it could also be that as we go into the season of Thanksgiving, and I look around and I see everyone preparing to go be with families, I'm going to be staying at home. Or maybe it looks like as people prepare to hunker down for the winter, you're trying to scramble pennies to make the mortgage payment. Or maybe you're in a place where as people are about to receive gifts, you're wondering, does anyone look out for me? And it's from this place of disappointment that it becomes very, very difficult to be grateful for the things that you have. Really quick example. This is very minor. It's a very minor disappointment, but it will give you the picture of what I'm talking about. So my wife and I, we just bought a brand new car. It's not brand new, but it looks brand new to us. And we spent some money on it, and we've had it for four days, and it has heated seats. We were driving down the road yesterday. The heated seats went out. We've had this car for four days, and we are disappointed that the heated seats are out. And it, it disappointed me. It profoundly disappointed me to the point that I wasn't even sure if I was grateful that we had another car. How stupid is that? We went from one car to two cars. Heated seats go out. I'm not grateful. But that's the truth. That's the truth of our souls. If you really think about it, if you're really honest with yourself, it's this place of disappointment that gets us to a place of ingratitude, and we miss the point that God's trying to teach us. And so whatever the suffering is, whatever the disappointment is, I want us to turn to Psalm 142, because I think that this is a place where we can learn what it is to be thankful in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our disappointments. And it's one of the most beautiful and profound psalms that speaks to my soul as an individual. But I want to give you some background on Psalm 142 before we open it up. So Psalm 142 is written by David. David, as a child, was anointed to be king over Israel. As a child, he then went and killed Goliath under the rule of Saul. Him and Saul became really close. Saul gave him his daughter in marriage for the reward of killing Goliath. David became one of Saul's greatest military leaders. David played the harp for Saul when Saul needed to relax, when Saul needed calmed. There was a friendship that was born. But David grew in so much popularity that Saul became jealous of David and sought to kill him. And so David had to run. And he had to run for his life. And so David, feeling betrayed by his good friend, feeling rejected, maybe by God, because he's still not king. God told him, you're going to be king. I've anointed you so. He's not king. He's running from the king. David finds himself alone in a cave. He finds himself alone, running for his life in a cave, questioning God, why are things not the way that I thought they were going to work out? Why am I not king? Why am I alone? What have I done that's brought me to this place? And this is where David writes the words of Psalm 142. So if you guys would like to stand, it should be on the screen. It says this, it says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, 
you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of this prison, that I might give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. You may have a seat. (laughs) Just let that psalm sit with you for a moment. Some versions say, I look to the right, and no one cares for me. And I don't know why the psalm speaks so profoundly to my heart, and I pray that it does to you, because I think it speaks to our human suffering and the fact where we find ourselves so alone and we wonder, is there anyone that cares? Is there anyone that cares for my soul? Is there anyone looking out for me? Does anyone know the struggle and the trial that I carry? But it's interesting that in the middle of this psalm, in the middle where David pours out his passion, he says, I lay my complaint before you. David's letting God have it. But in the middle of that, he remembers to give thanks to God. He gives thanks for being his refuge. He gives thanks for hearing him. He gives thanks for saving him. And he gives thanks for bringing him into a place of community. And it's interesting that David is able to be thankful in the middle of his suffering. But when I looked into the definition of thankfulness, what I found was is that to be thankful is to express gratitude or relief. And I think many of us understand the idea of thankfulness being a place where we express gratitude. We say, thank you. Somebody opens the door, thank you. Somebody gives us a gift, thank you. We understand the idea of gratitude. But the one thing that caught me by surprise was this idea that Thanksgiving was also a place where we offer a sigh of relief. So when somebody opens the door for you and you walk through it, you say, thank you. They've relieved you of the troublesome burden of opening the door. When somebody provides a meal for you, you say thank you because they've relieved you from having to cook and wash and do all the things that dinner requires. You see, the idea of thankfulness goes far beyond just expressing gratitude, but it's acknowledging where things have intersected your life that have brought relief. And whether the heated seats in my car work or not, that car has brought relief to my family. It's brought relief to us. I know it's a silly thing, but there, there are things that when we look past this year and when we want to think about the things that God has provided for us, places that we need to be thankful, just ask, where have I been relieved this year? Where have I been relieved? And I think that in the middle of suffering, what we need more than anything else is a place where we can point to and look for relief. And the antidote to that is in our thanksgiving. And so in this passage, I see four things that we can go to and find relief when we are in the middle of our suffering. When we are in the middle of the suffering that keeps us from gratitude, there are four things that we can point at and say, this will bring relief to my situation. That is number one, that we are grateful that God hears us. We are then grateful that God guides us. We are grateful that God saves us. And we are grateful that God brings us into community. It'll be through these things that our soul will find rest and relief and thanksgiving in the midst of whatever trial we face, whatever suffering we face on the day-to-day is that God hears us, God guides us, God saves us, and God calls us into a community. 
So the first point is, is that God hears us. Throughout all of history, throughout all of Scripture, the cry of the oppressed never goes unheard. We see it begin in Genesis chapter 4. Cain kills Abel, and Abel's blood cries out to God, and God hears the cry of his blood and comes down and makes things right with Cain. He makes things right. He justifies the blood of Abel. The next place that we see it is in Sodom and Gomorrah. The cry against the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that God must come down and investigate it. And he has this haggling with Abraham, if I find 40 righteous people, I'll spare it, if I find this. And he ends up sparing Lot and his wife and his family. But the sin against Sodom and Gomorrah was that they were too rich, that they did not share with the needy, they did not share with the poor, they did not share with the marginalized. They did not care for the widows. They did not care for the orphans. They just cared only about themselves. And God comes and he makes it right. The next place that we find a cry out to God is the people of Israel who's been enslaved for 400 years, working under the Egyptian rule. They cry out to God and that cry has become so great that he goes to Moses in the form of a burning bush and says, you are the man that I'm going to use to save my people. The cry has become so great and I have heard it. It's reached my ears. I'm going to go do something about it. And then we get to Matthew and we see Jesus. He's walking down the streets of Jerusalem and it's Palm Sunday and people are crying out, Hosanna. And here God is in person to save the day. And people are still crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is oftentimes a term of praise. But in this case, it is also a phrase that means most desperately, God save us. God save us. And so as Jesus comes in, we see this mix of both praise and also crying out to God to save them, to make things right. Because there are people filled with grief and disappointment because they look around and they say things are not the way that they should be. And God hears our cry. God hears our cry. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking to his disciples about prayer and he says, he gives them three commands. He gives them the command to ask, to seek, and to knock. And it will be given to them. I think of this idea of knocking, of just standing at a door, of laying my complaint before God, of just pounding at a door that's closed shut until my knuckles are bleeding, saying, God, answer. God answers the door. And the thing is that in chapter 7, he goes on to say that God is like a good father that cares for his children and that will give him good gifts. And anyone that's a parent here this morning knows what that's about. You know when your child cries and they've like fallen and like, you know, hit their knee and it's like, they're going to be okay. But then you also know like the cry of just distress where something is terribly wrong with my child and you come running and you come running to save them and you pick them up and you hold them close. And you say, I'm here, and I'm here to give good gifts to you. This is the God that we serve. It's a God that hears us and that comes near to us in our time of distress. It's not a God that stands far off and lets us suffer alone in isolation. Paul encourages us to pray. He ends one of his books with the <laughs> encouragement to pray all types of prayers and give all types of requests. And I love this verse. Because to me, what Paul's saying is that don't worry about what you pray. Don't worry about whether you pray is selfish or not selfish. Let God sort that. But just pray. Just pray. Just give God the burdens 
of your soul. And the beautiful thing about prayer is that it brings us to a place where our humility and our faith collide. To pray is to be humble and to pray is to have faith. People ask, what is it to grow in faith? And I say the answer is prayer. If you want to grow in your faith, pray. If you want to grow in humility and lose pride, pray. Because prayer says, one, I can't do it. I don't have the strength to do it. I'm not able to achieve this thing that I'm about to pray for. And number two, when you open your mouth and you begin to pray those words to God, you're saying, I believe that there's a God who hears my cry. And I believe that he is going to do something about it. Prayer allows us to imagine the impossible and hope for the impossible and trust that there's a God who's hearing us and that he's going to come and save us like he's done time and time and time again over history. Prayer gives us the faith that all things might be possible through Jesus Christ. The second point is that God guides us. God guides us. David writes, he says, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. God is always aware of the next step, and he's never surprised. He's never surprised. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and he comes and he says, what happened? It's not of what happened, I'm surprised, I don't know what to do next. It's a what happened of calling to account. But he has a plan. He has a plan to make things right. He's, he's not surprised at all, and he begins the master plan of Jesus Christ coming to save us. And he says, I'm going to send my son and he's going to die. And I'm going to tell people throughout history that my son is coming so that when he comes, hopefully you don't miss it. And then his son comes and he dies and he says, I've come to bring you life and I, I will come back again and restore everything and make everything new, make everything right, take away all of your disappointments, all of your sorrows. This is the God that we serve, not one that's blindsided, by the thing that we are now experiencing. But oftentimes we're surprised by our suffering. I know when the heated seats went out, I was like, what? <laughs> like, you know, I know that whenever something happens, whenever something tragic happens, or you end up in the hospital, you don't, you're not like, you're not like, man, I really scheduled it, you know? Whenever you break a bone or you end up in a place where things didn't go out how you planned, you're, you're shocked because... You planned something different, and now you're doing something else. But I think it's great to know that we have a God that's not surprised when our plans change, and that he knows our way, that he knows our next step. But the thing is, is that all too often, we are afraid of not knowing our next step. All too often, we are in a place where we think that when suffering comes and when we're surprised that somehow God is punishing us. That somehow God is punishing us. That the suffering that we're experiencing is that God coming down on his wrathful cloud and saying, here, I'm taking this from you. And you say, yep, God, I know. I, I knew that you couldn't trust me with that. I knew I'd mess it up. That's, what, that's the conversation that we have in our head. But that's not even close to the reality. Instead, our God is the God who says that when you fail, I'm here to catch you. And I'm here to pick you up and I'm here to provide the next step when you don't know where it is. He's a God that comes down and says that I'm here for you. Oftentimes, we often also feel guilty about not handling life well 
that's what I'll call it, when we come into a place of disappointment or struggle and we're not okay, but we're trying really hard to be okay. I don't know if you've ever been in this place. Oftentimes happens at funerals um, where like you're trying really hard to be okay, but you're really not. Um, and everyone's asking you, are you okay? And you just want to be like, no, I'm not. But you can't do that because it's not flight. Um, and so you like put on your smiling face. Yep, everything's okay. But what we really need, what we really need is permission to not be okay. We need permission to not be okay for a time, for a season. And as I'm talking about this, this idea of liturgy and this idea of rhythm, like for me, the last two Thanksgivings have been kind of hard. Two years ago, I moved to Madison. I knew no one. Um, I had a long-term, long-distance relationship, and that ended right before Thanksgiving. And I went home over Thanksgiving, and I lost it, lying on my floor in my parents' house, just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing in the city. I don't know anybody. The one person that I thought I knew just left, like, she's gone. Um, I don't know if I should move back to Madison. I don't know what to do. And then last Thanksgiving, my grandfather was diagnosed with, uh, <coughs> with cancer. And on Christmas Eve, we found ourselves doing emergency surgery um, to, to keep him alive. Um, and so Christmas didn't come with a holiday ham or anything like that. Instead, it came in the form of boxes of Chinese. Um, and, you know, after time, you know, I'm just kind of like, okay, this is the third year. Like, what's going to happen this Thanksgiving, you know? You kind of get in this place where you just start expecting the worst. And like, we go through life pretending that we're okay. But in reality, there, there needs to be a season where we're not okay for a little bit. And when I was on the floor two years ago, there was a season of about seven months where it was okay for me to not be okay. And so I just want to give you that permission this morning, that it's okay for you to not be okay. Because what often happens is that we feel guilty for not being okay in the middle of our suffering. Because we've believe this theological lie that God does not give us more than what we can handle. When we go to 1 Corinthians where this verse is pulled out of, it says this, it says, no temptation has overtaken you that's common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he also provides a way of escape that you might endure it. In this passage, Paul is talking about temptation. He's talking about things that we might fall into he says that God is going to provide a way out. It says nothing about suffering. And if you read this verse and your hermeneutic comes out or your understanding comes out that I should be able to bear my temptations on my own, I should be able to rise above it, that I should be able to endure my sufferings, you misread the verse. Because it's not you that's supposed to find the way out, it's God that provides the way out. And for you to step into that, you have to have faith that there is a God providing a way out for you, that there is a God who's able to save you and that you are not able to save yourself that you are not capable of handling this life well. That's the first thing that we need to admit and stop feeling guilty about it. Because the truth is, is that we're going to face a ton of things in this life that we're not equipped for, we're not ready for, and that we're not able to bear on our own. And so we need to stop preaching this message that God cannot give you more than you can handle. The reality is that God has given us more than we can handle, but instead he's given us Jesus Christ who can handle that and all the more. You see, God never expected us to be able to save ourselves. You can't do that. Thus, the hermeneutic that God has given you more than you can handle, that's false. 
So we trust on the one that is able to. We trust on the one that is able to free us, the one that's able to know our next step, the one that where we cannot see what's in front of us next, we just fall into it and say, God, I trust that you are there. I trust that you are going to guide my step. The third point is that God saves us. God saves us. David says, the Lord is my refuge. And my hope for you is that in this space and in this place at Damascus Road, as you come here and you rest from your week, from the busyness, from the trials that you face, that this place of worship, that this place of hearing God's word would be a place (coughs) that is a refuge for you. That here you might be free from your pride, that you might be free from your addictions for a moment, that you might be free from anxiety, that you might be free from conflict, that this place would be a place of rest, and that this place could be the imagination of what you could carry into next week. That this place of refuge and this place of salvation, this place where you feel at home can go with you and not just stay here and be a place that we momentarily breathe on a Sunday morning. (laughs) My hope is that this place reminds you that God is near. Thank you. Just a sec. It's hot up here. All right, but my hope is that this place will be a place that reminds you that God is near, that God is close, that God is strong, and that God is able. I mean, we just praised God for that. I mean, worship this morning was amazing. It was all about how God has come in and saved us, how God in his might and his power has reached down and delivered us. And you see, David says that in his complaint before God, he says, God, they have set traps before me. And as we go out this morning, there are going to be traps set before us. And maybe you're already thinking about what they are. Maybe you're already thinking about the anxiety of the bills this week. Maybe you're already thinking about where you might get your next high. Maybe you're already thinking about how you're going to deal with your struggle with pornography. Maybe you're trying to think through how you're going to deal with the conflict with your boss. Maybe you're already thinking about the things that bring distress to your soul. But you see that God is here and he is ready to save us and transform us in very real and tangible ways. He's ready to free us from our addictions. He's ready to free us from our pride. He's ready to free us from the things that hold us back. And so let God know, God, they have set a trap and I need you. I need you to be my refuge. I need you to go before me. And I need you to guide my steps because I'm not strong enough to. God is here to save. Jesus did not just die on a cross so that we could have eternal life somewhere else, sometime else. He came that we could have eternal life and salvation right here, right now in this place. He came and died on a cross so that we might be filled with his spirit and that his spirit will guide and direct our decision. He came so that (laughs) we might experience a place of rest in our souls and a place of relief in the middle of our suffering, that we are not alone. And that there is one that goes before us and there's one that guides us behind us. And that is God. So we have relief that God saves us from the traps that are set before you as you go out today. Remember, God does not expect you to be able to save yourself. It's quite the opposite. He came to provide us a place of refuge 
in the moment we needed it the most. So he's here in the moment that you need the most. The final thing that brings us relief is that God brings us into community with one another. David ends this psalm and he says, the righteous will surround me. And this psalm happens in real life, in real place, in real time with David. He's in this cave. He's alone. And he says, the righteous will gather around me. And you're like, who are these righteousness? Who are these righteous people that he's talking about? Well, if we go to 1 Samuel chapter 22, it says this, verses 1 and 2. And so I hacked off the beginning, but it says basically David escaped to a cave. And then it says, when his brothers and father's household heard about this, they went down to him. And then all those who were distressed, in debt, discontented, discontented gathered around him. And he became their leader. And there were about 400 of them. These are the righteous that David's talking about. Those that are in debt, those that are distressed, and those that are discontented. Those are the people that God brings near to David, and David becomes their leader. And I don't know about you, but as I look across this room, and I even know the status of my own soul, I carry all three of debt, discontent, (laughs) and distress. I just cannot help but see that this is a picture of the church. That God has given us the beautiful miracle of the church and a brand new place of belonging. So that when God saves us, he doesn't just save us in the eternal sense, but he saves us in the here and now where we can come together as a family. We can come together as a place where maybe we have a really broken family. Maybe we don't have a family at all. Maybe you're looking for a new family. Well, this church, this body of believers is a place where you can find that. God has come here to give you a family. And if you're having a Thanksgiving and if you know of a family that doesn't have a family or that isn't planning on a Thanksgiving or that doesn't have the funds for a Thanksgiving, invite them in and be that family. God has called us to be family to one another. And we might be dysfunctional. There's no doubt about it. We might be just as dysfunctional as your family at home. But the reality is, is that this place, we come together united knowing that we've all been saved by grace. We all need grace. And so in here, like Paul says, there's no slave or free or Jew or Gentile. There's no Democrat. There's no Republican. There's no Lions fans. There's no Green Bay fans. We're all on the same plane. We're all here together, and we're here for a family, for one cause, and that is to praise God and thank him for the relief that he has given us in Jesus Christ. The relief that he's given us and the fact that he hears our prayers that he hears our cries, the relief that we feel (laughs) that God knows our next step, the relief that we feel that God has saved us, and the relief that we feel being brought into community where we can say, I have a home. I have a home. I have a place to lie my head. And so as this rhythm of the season begins with Thanksgiving, let us give our distressed souls permission to find relief, to take a breath and take a step back and know that it's all going to be okay because God is able and God is strong and we just proclaim that and we're about to proclaim it again and we're about to enjoy a meal that proclaims that Christ died for us, rose for us and that he's coming back to get us and that he's here present with us in our spirit 
together in one body, that this is a place of rest, this is a place where God is near, and that it doesn't just exist here, but that God is just as present, just as real, just as near as you step outside those doors and you face the traps that are set before you. Just ask him to guide your steps and bring people into community with you. Say, hey, I know these are the, step, these are the traps set before me. Walk with me so that I might not step in them. Be with me. Guide me. God knows our cry. He knows our path. He saves our souls. Let God redeem this season for us. And let this season be a place of rest, this place of love. May we enter the Thanksgiving season where we can celebrate joy, life, Thanksgiving, and salvation. Let's celebrate that as we come to communion. And let's celebrate that God is near and that he saved us when we were found unable to save ourselves. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord God, I just thank you for this day. And I thank you for this time that we have to open your word and know that you are good. To know that the struggles that we face are very real and that you can handle it. That you can hear our prayers of distress, our crying out to you, God. But God, that you provide relief. That you provide relief to our souls. And God, we just ask that as we prepare for this week, as we prepare for this week of thanks, that, that we would find relief in ways that we never dreamed to experience it. So God, I just pray that we would know your salvation in a very real way and that you'd go before us. In your name we pray, amen.